This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Longtime professor Kathy Davidson is used to speaking in front of large crowds. Often a crowd for her is a classroom full of students, but every now and then she's stepped in front of a really large crowd. 6,000 people in the Philadelphia 76ers Auditorium. 6,000 people were in the audience waiting for her to share her tips on teaching. The occasion was a big conference of international baccalaureate teachers, and this keynote she did took place in the arena in Philadelphia where the NBA team plays. Her face, of course, was projected on jumbotrons as she spoke. But Kathy Davidson didn't just want to lecture to this crowd. I mixed it up by saying, I'm not going to talk. I want you to talk first. And um, everybody had an index card and a pencil. And I asked them a question, I, something simple like, um, uh, why do you love teaching? And I gave them 90 seconds and, and um, they wrote. And then I said, now turn to somebody you don't know and have take turns because I want each person to be able to hear themselves speak as well as to able to give themselves a chance to listen, read what's on your card to somebody else that you've never met before. And I said, now, I said, you've got a minute to do that. And I said, now, talk to each other about how you're going to present that to this group. This technique turns out to be a go-to teaching method for what's called active learning, where you get participants to engage with the material rather than simply sit back and listen. The specific technique is called think, pair, share. Davidson says she uses it in just about all her talks these days. But she was a little nervous about whether it would scale to a stadium level. The room went crazy. It was deafening. I bet our decibel level was higher than at a Philadelphia 76ers game. And I then had to practically yell several times to get people to pay attention to me again. They were paying me to be the keynoter. The punchline is, that's a win. If you're in a classroom or in any setting where people are so engaged in the topic that they don't care about the the so-called famous speaker that's there or the teacher that's there, that is learning. That's an educational win. Davidson is on a mission these days to promote the practice of active learning. And she says the stakes are higher than many people might realize. It's not just about test scores and whether people learn. She argues there's an ethical issue that sometimes gets lost in discussions of teaching. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge. Kathy Davidson has spent her career encouraging innovation in education. A classic example of her work, back in 2003, nearly 20 years ago, she led a groundbreaking experiment at Duke University to experiment with using iPods in education. Some listeners may hardly remember Apple's iPod, but it was then pretty new, and Duke became one of the first to experiment with putting out free lectures online that people could listen to on these digital music players. Back then, the word podcast had not been coined yet. Some people use the word audio blogging to describe what I'm doing right now. Anyway, Kathy Davidson is a legend in digital education circles. These days, She works at the City University of New York, 
as the Senior Advisor to the Chancellor on Transformation at CUNY's Graduate Center. Her latest book is just out, and it's called The New College Classroom. She co-wrote it with a younger scholar, a postdoctoral research associate at CUNY, Christina Katapotis. The book is a surprisingly lively read for a how-to book on teaching. It contains what are essentially recipes of a sort for various active learning techniques, but it's also full of examples and context that remind readers of how classroom moments, when done well, can be life-changing ones for students. And on the flip side, the book argues that colleges in particular have a responsibility to make classrooms new, to meet the changing demographics of students and the changing needs of the workforce. I started by asking Kathy Davidson, why is there still so much old-fashioned lecturing going on if research shows that mixing in more active techniques works better? So let me first back up just a little bit and um, tell your listeners about a wonderful study that Scott um, Freeman conducted for the publications of the National Academy of Science in 2014, which is a meta-study of 225 separate studies of learning. And in that study, he and his co-authors discovered that no matter what metric you use, even standardized testing, the most boring metric, applicability, replication, meaningfulness, inspiration, um, ability to take what you've learned and apply it elsewhere, everything that, um, and this is a paraphrase of what they say in the article, if traditional learning had been a pharmaceutical study, it would be taken off the market. There was no measure by which traditional learning, by which I mean lectures and what we call seminars, but they're really distributed lectures. We know the three students that are going to teach. They tell us what we're going to teach. We already have the plan all written out. You know, that's not really uh, a free-for-all or a seminar. That's a, 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 you know, a kind of a scripted, uh, scripted reality show um, in our classrooms. Um, you know, active learning wins. Active learning. So in a follow-up piece, Scott Freeman said, it's not about the evidence anymore. Um, the Nobel Prize winning physicist Carl Wyman, who's a professor of both physics and education at Stanford, um, uh, has written a, a book about how to, how to, uh, call, about how to teach science better. He's a huge active, um, advocate of active learning. He said traditional learning is basically like bloodletting was, um, in the, in the past, where it, people knew for a hundred years that bloodletting didn't work, but it took a hundred years for people to finally give up bloodletting and go to other forms of medicine. Um, he says, Wyman says, um, we have over a thousand studies now, different kinds of studies about learning, active learning works. And we know that with our children, right? If you're teaching a two-year-old to, to walk, you don't give them a final exam. You don't lecture them on walking. You have them walk. They do well. You reward them. You stand a little further back so they walk further. That's exactly what active learning is. That's how you scaffold um, active learning. Um, the reason that most of us don't know about that, there's several reasons. One, almost no college professors learn about pedagogy when they're training to be college professors. They have a research and methods class. Almost every field, every department has a research and methods class. And it's about, it's about doing your research. Why? This is structural. When Charles Eliot and his colleagues in the 1890s recreate the Puritan College, which was designed to train ministers for the modern world of the assembly line, 
uh, the Taylorist world of the assembly line, very overtly, we're going to remake the university for the world we live in now. They also created the first school of education. The first school of education at Harvard was for K through 12 teachers explicitly, overtly. It says college teachers must not go to schools of education because the role of a college professor is to learn, to forward the research of their professor in the way the professor before them did that. So we have these leg, and how do you get tenure and promotion at a university? By having uh, research articles uh, in the sciences, uh, a monograph published by University Press in the humanities and the qualitative social sciences, um, and your research is the entire focus, and so much of your career depends entirely on that. Whether you're a great teacher or not is kind of a footnote. Um, uh, in higher education. So we have multiple structures, both historical and reward systems, that are, that are about saying teaching doesn't matter. Ironically, sociologists of education have also studied how much time faculty members spend on their teaching. It's about 66% of their time in any given week is either teaching, preparing for class, grading, um, reading an article for teaching, but something specifically that's about teaching. So here we have something that takes up the majority of our time, but it's barely almost invisible in our reward system. And it's, we have to be autodidacts of the thing we do, do, do most because most of us weren't trained. So when Christina Katapotis and I wrote this book, we really wanted to be able to give people a crash course in the best research out there, then show them the big ethical, philosophical um, reasons for it, and then say, okay, now you've got all that. Here's how you can actually do it. And then we gave them very concrete models and examples of how you actually do it, from writing a syllabus to a final exam and every point in between. And it wasn't us. We interviewed hundreds of people, both online and face-to-face, uh, and read their articles. And we we're constantly reporting on the best models that people all over the world, in all fields, at community colleges or at Ivy League universities, in introductory courses or graduate courses, what they do to be successful and to ensure their students have skills that are not only about learning content, but on a meta level, understanding how you make content. That's what Think Pair Share is. You're learning how to make content and having that as a tool in your toolkit for the rest of your life. Um, that's an amazing confidence building builder, especially for first generation college students, but even for PhD students. Um, because when I teach Famous professors, how to do active learning. I use the same techniques that I that actually I learned from a second grade teacher. As you said, it's a guidebook for how to teach with active learning. It's not just a uh, one of those books that says like everything's broken and needs to be fixed and then go and that's it. Go fix it. But how? So you say how. And I wanted to go through some of these just to give people a flavor. Um, and I'd love to hear an example of each of these. But let's do a couple. You what about everybody raise their hand? Um, what does everybody raise their hand? This is a something so moving from the great, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant science fiction writer Samuel Delaney. Um, Delaney is black, gay, was an A-plus student at the Bronx School of Science, but ran, not walked, from the Upper West Side, from his middle-class black family to the West Village 
um, as a teenager. And at 19, wrote his first science fiction novel. And at 20, it was a bestseller. He never went to college. If you ask other writers who's the most well-read writer in America, often his name comes up. He's incredible. And if you've ever read any of Samuel Delaney's science fiction, it's so dense and so hard and so learned. He was 40 before he ever entered a college class. He was invited to give a class on science fiction at Wesleyan. And um, he says he prepared for it with as much depth and intensity as he does for writing one of his novels. And he was nervous because he had never been, he wasn't, had never gone to college, had never been in a college classroom. And he was so excited. He went into the class. He asked a question and he thought 100% of the students this was an elective. 100% of the students would be raising their hand, and three students raised their hand. And 20 years later, somebody made a movie about him, and he actually weeps when he tells the story. And he says, don't you realize that every time you don't raise a hand, your hand, you're saying you're, you're learning how not to ask for a raise? You're learning how to take it? You're learning you're invisible? You're learning you don't count? You're learning your opinions don't matter. It's not just that you're not raising your hand because you don't know the answer. You're saying, I am not worthy of having an answer. And so he said, so what he's done, he then started getting, he got a job at Temple and started teaching. And what he does in his class is he asks a question and he says, every student has to raise their hand. He says, I don't care if you know the answer or not, you have to raise your hand. From cognitive neuroscience, we know that the very act of raising your hand tells you I am here. It claims a place for yourself. And what he does is he'll say, he'll call on anybody randomly. Kathy, do you have the answer? And if I don't have the answer, I'll say, no, um, Mr. Delaney, I don't have the answer today, but I think my friend Jeff Young does. And I popcorn it to Jeff Young. Whether you know the answer or not, you've got your hand up. Whether you know, know the answer or not, you raise your hand. And sometimes he has people stand even. But the point is they're all engaged. And what he's found, needless to say, is once he started doing that, his students always read for class, were excited. The atmosphere just tingled because people did realize they had something to say. They were worth having something to say. It's an amazing, amazing way to get total part, what's called total participation, which means everybody is somehow engaged, even in a huge lecture class. Um, everybody is somehow involved. We have thousands of listeners each week to this podcast. I, f- I want everybody to just raise their hand right now as they're listening. I don't know. Yay, let's raise our hands. We're here. We're here. I, this this notion is really powerful. It's interesting. It's so powerful. I read the quote from Delaney that I gave a paraphrase just now. I read the actual quote in almost every talk I give because it's so from the heart, so from the heart and such so ethical and important. And because that's ultimately what good teaching is, it's just an ethics of inclusion and acceptance and teaching people how to ask for a raise. After the break, we learn Kathy Davidson's favorite teaching technique which isn't about course material at all. Stay with us. What do UCLA, Old Dominion University, University of Memphis, and Miami-Dade College all have in common? Well, they and hundreds of other institutions have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS, then archive their student data. Traditional LMS migration options, like manually migrating courses one at a time, or using bulk migration tools that leave the content fragmented and incomplete, are simply outdated. And so too is archiving student data on an expensive legacy LMS, or in unreadable cold storage. Introducing System Migration and Data Archiving by K16 Solutions. 
System Migration is an automated solution that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another. Capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools. And with data archiving, administrators can archive student data on K16's platform at a fraction of the price and access that data quickly and easily at any time in their new LMS. Finally, an LMS migration and archiving solution that's kept pace with the rest of technology. To learn more about K16 Solutions products and services, visit k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. Now, uh, let's do another one. Listening dyad. What is a listening dyad? That sounds like very jargony. Uh, so I was like... It is very jargony. And I learned this from one of our postdoctoral fellows um, who, um, what you do, and I'm not, always, I'm not a big fan of this one. Christina does this much better than I do. You have a partner and you set an alarm. And, right, you can uh, do it on your phone. And you, you set, each set talk a, for... Yeah. You can do it on your phone and it can be for one minute or two minutes and you just talk and the other person does not respond in any way. The point, sometimes people get shy, but that it's, you, you lose the shyness. Amazingly, you lose the shyness and you start saying things that you didn't even know you knew. So then you switch off and the other person does the two minutes or whatever. And the other one does. So you have, can have an opportunity where everybody talks and everybody has a chance to listen. You can then share that with the room, but you don't have to share it with the room. And the very exercise, it's almost like a warm-up exercise before yoga or before running a marathon or something. And it's an intellectual, I, it's another I am here exercise. And, and so that, that idea is um, to just get, get people involved, pair up, and then come back to a, a, a class setting, a, a, a group. Absolutely. And it does change the whole atmosphere in the room. It changes the energy level. It's a, it's, it, 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 it just changes everything about the way people interact with one another. What's your, what's your favorite? You know, one of my favorites is, um, the collectively annotated syllabus. So there's two parts of this one. I've totally changed how I do my syllabus. I now have my syllabus, um, where there's a tiny little short form of all the information you have to know what's due every day of the class, when the exams are, when the papers are due. So it's very short at the top. Um, actually, the first thing at the top is a care statement saying, I, I care about you. Here's the mental and physical health places to go to care. Here's the career services place. And so it has some U URLs. So the very first they see, see is a care statement. After that is the syllabus, which is tiny. And then you can go to a much more, and I do this online, so it's easy to click. So there are lots of links on any assignment. You can click and go to a, a bigger assignment. Even with that simplified version, because we live in a risk management world, every syllabus comes with pages and pages of if this happens, this happens. And if this, you break this rule, you get this. And if you plagiarize, you get this. It's like, so, it's a, it's, I, as I like to say, we students read them with about the same amount of care that we all read terms of services agreements. The click, yeah, that click agreement that you have you know, to do that, on your, the, yeah, your app. The, yeah. <laughs> right, you have to do. So um, what I do, and I think I learned this from Christina, is I have students on the first day of class divide up the syllabus and either I put it in a Google Doc or something where they actually annotate it and ask questions together. They work in small groups and they ask questions. Or I have that in sections and each group has my three or four students who are involved in one section and they explain that section to other students. 
the most t- common comment you hear from faculty is, I told students to do it. It was on the syllabus. And what do they do? They're always asking me, well, it's all, if that means you fail to communicate, right? And But that doesn't happen when the students have this annotation. Um, sometimes I do it as a scavenger hunt. Well, I'll put some, and I'll put some goofy things in there um, for them to find. But the point is to have a, a, a um, first an attractively arranged syllabus with the care materials up front, something that's concise and something that says, yeah, 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 we have to have all that risk management stuff. And it's important. I want you to know what a plagiarism is, but it's not just something you click and say, I've done it. Here's my terms of service agreement. I've done it. It's really something to understand. And the one that always ends up generating the most conversation is plagiarism. And especially when I teach at a school like um, uh, undergraduates at CUNY, if you have 40 students, they might come from 25 different countries. And plagiarism is very historical and it's very nationally specific. Um, different countries have different traditions, different fields have different traditions. So it's always a very, very meaningful discussion about what what is plagiarism, what isn't plagiarism. I love it. So starting with the syllabus, though, it really is setting this tone of of being active, even if it's not just the it, when you're in class together, you're trying to set this tone. Um, I wanted to I wanted to ask about the um, uh, move to this thing that you, you referenced when we talked a little bit about the everybody raise their hand, which is that the there are implications for for. For, there are equity implications, and one some of those are in the classroom. You mention you mention in the book that you've taught a lot of computer science and tech sort of environments where you're a, alone or a rare woman in the room um, of conversations, and that you feel like has been. And there are these gender disparities in classroom discussions that docu- that are well documented, and so it sounds like some of the teaching techniques in your book. Are, are not just about how to make a good class, but to make sure that these classes are happening in an equitable way in the classroom. Absolutely. And those are structural considerations as well. I mean, gender is a structure, right? I mean, these are things that are embedded in how we respond to one another. Um, sociologists of education have studied who are those three people that raise their hands all the time in class. And they are most likely to be people who are a good fit with the various identities of their professor. Sometimes that might be gender. Sometimes that might be race. It's almost always educational background of parents. Uh, sometimes it's income level. And sometimes the fit is scarily precise. Um, so what we're talking about is an educational system that rewards the those who have succeeded in the educational system. So it's a self-perpetuating system. So finding ways... You know, there's all kinds of diversity and equity ways you can include other people. But if the structure is still a reward structure that tacitly and implicitly rewards a certain kind of person, that those kinds of issues don't won't cha- won't ever change. There's one example that I thought was really interesting. So getting back to these techniques that are very concrete. And there's one in, in that chapter or in that section of the book that is called popsicle sticks. That, that is a, a teaching technique, an active learning teaching technique to get at this. Can you describe that one? Yes, it's a great one. Um, everybody's given a certain number of popsicle sticks and you give a different number of sticks depending on how big the class are. So you might get two two popsicle sticks given to every student. Exactly. Let's say you have two for every student. That means in the course of the term of the class, of that class session, that student, if a student makes a comment, any comment, they give up one of their popsicle sticks. They make a second comment. They give up the second popsicle stick. They're out of popsicle sticks. They can't talk again. 
And the reason that is, is because sociologists of education have figured out who speaks most in a class. And again, the person whose identity is closest to that of the professor is the one most likely to, most likely to speak. The popsicle stick is the simplest way, and it's kind of gamey, so it's fun. It, it's not punitive, it's not wagging your finger at somebody. It's like, whoop, I'm out of popsicle sticks. But it's not just that it, it, it regulates or, um, uh, uh, equalizes who's speaking in a classroom. It makes you think about, is what I'm about to say valuable enough to use up this popsicle stick? And um, and then once some people have lost up the, lost their popsicle sticks, the teacher can, the professor can say things like, okay, who still has a popsicle stick? Because it's getting quiet in here. And and encourage those who still have popsicle sticks um, to to participate. Um, you're talking in the book about how this does, this, there is something at stake beyond just whether a classroom is, is run well, that, that these are habits and, and, you know, skills that, that students should take out into the real world for their success. Absolutely. Um, another inventory method, inventory method means everybody participates at once. It's not raise your hand if you know the right answer. Another inventory one that I um, I use a, a some kind of entry ticket or exit ticket in every class. That's again I, I typically use an index card. When I do it online, I use the chat where I ask a question that everybody answers. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. Everyone participates in some way. Sometimes they're polls. Um, a friend of mine, Jonathan Stern, who teaches media studies at uh, McGill University, 400 students. On like, you know, what could be more? compelling right now than the media world we all live in, right? With QAnon and, you know, a million different things are happening in our world that nobody anticipated. So it's in a very important class. He has students at the end of every class fill out a little index card saying, what thing did we talk about in class? He has different questions, but my favorite is, what did we talk about in class today that you'll still be thinking about when you go to sleep tonight? And if there's nothing, what should we be talking about in class? And um, because he has 400 students and he has TAs with discussion sections, he divides these up to the TAs so they can see what their 20 students um, were interested in that day. And that makes for an amazing discussion that's very relevant to those students in a powerful way. And because he's a real, perf- I mean, he's literally a performer. He's a musician. He also um, had cancer of the throat, so has found ways to speak through a voice box, which is pretty amazing in itself. And he teaches sound studies and media studies and disability studies. Um, he will array the cards out in front of him. And like a maestro, he plays the cards and will answer in the next class, will address the things people said in the cards. It's incredible. And needless to say, he's, he's, he also has a wonderful blog called something. It's in the book. I can't remember the name of it. But um, if you go to it, he shows the data he's collected over the years about student attention, students coming to class, student grades. And the more he finds ways, even in a huge lecture class, to engage students, the more all of those other metrics go up. It's quite fascinating to see and uh, very compelling. So these active in learning um, techniques increase the grades, even if they're small um, interventions. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And attendance in class, participation in class, um, enthusiasm for the class, likelihood to take another class in the field, um, likelihood to read beyond the class. Um, Many of the people we we interviewed for this said one problem with active learning is their students can get lost. The students get so excited, they have to sort of 
<laughs> say, wait, 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 you have a job, you're taking four classes, you can't just read in this class. But they get so excited about their ability to, to contribute and to make a class. I always, another thing with my syllabus, there's always some part, sometimes all of it, but that's only once did I ever do all of it, but there's always some part that I have students invent. Um, some unit in the class where the students work together, they'll vote things up and down, um, they'll pitch their ideas to the other students, and then we, that will be the assignment for that unit. I mean, I have students who go, who read like 20 books in order to figure out which book they want to um, push in that class or what study they want to focus on or what topic they want to focus on. And again, my job is then to reel them back in and say, no, 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 you know, this is just one class. Don't, don't go crazy. You have another, you have a life. Um, but it's very, that's a quite different thing than the apathetic students who sit there like, oh yeah, right. And, uh, aren't interested at all. You, you, you also, Mentioned reference in the book that we are in a um, uh, operating right now as you know in a society where polarization seems at a very you know peak level it seems and there's a lot of um, skepticism uh, that I see around higher ed and and just and some education in general that that are um, and even some pushback on making classes equitable or or teaching. Uh, diversity um, themes and and I I wonder what is um, your advice to um, to a teacher that's concerned about the kind of polarized environment we're in right now and and how to be an effective teacher there. It's it would depend on the situation. In some states right now, we're having law laws being passed about teachers, especially public school high school teachers, but also college teachers that um, don't just hint of McCarthyism, but are more extreme than many of the kinds of book bannings and rule setting um, that happened under McCarthyism, one of the sorriest chapters in American history. So I take very seriously um, the, the mental and physical health of, of faculty and students who have to thrive in those those. Uh, situations now. Um, the whole argument over critical race theory, which anybody who knows about critical race theory will say it's about law school, it's never taught in K through 12, um, that's extended so far so that there are schools, and this isn't just paranoia, this is documented, that it won't allow you to talk about Martin Luther King anymore because that's critical race theory. Well, my goodness, that's, the, that's pretty terrifying when we've come to that. So I have no single advice because I'm extremely respectful, um, terrified even, of what it would mean to teach in an environment like that, um, especially when you have people, sometimes paid people, and I've had paid people, actually, the last time there was a culture war is way long ago when I first started where I had people being paid to come in in my classes and take notes on my, uh, on my classes and report me. This is this was like at Michigan when I taught at Michigan State as an assistant professor back in like the eighties. I mean, a long, long time ago. Um, so I think you have to be very careful depending on your situation. We're not in a time where anyone can take things lightly, and the more vulnerable you are in other kinds of ways, untenured, 
uh, other kinds of ways, the more likely it is for something to happen. So I'm not going to make a blanket on this program. I'm not going to make a blanket one because I'd want somebody to be able to talk to me, to tell me what's paranoia, what's actually written, what the written words are, and to listen very carefully to what the restrictions are. Just think it's irresponsible now when real things are happening to real people. Um, to try to generalize or to be goody two shoes about, oh, just pretend everything's okay because it's not okay. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, I, I guess in some ways, um, I, I, I reference it to just remind people that teaching, there's a lot of facets to teaching these days that, and a lot at stake. Um, and it, 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 whether it's a K 12 or college classroom, um, it seems. It's a, there's, the stakes have never been higher in every direction, um, I would say. And um, it's a difficult time. And yet, if you're in a situation where you have the opportunity, it's also an amazing time because students aren't stupid. Students know what's going on. And if they are in a situation where they have the freedom to ask and to learn, they do ask and learn. Um, Bruce Mao, who's somebody we talk about in the book, uh, the famous designer has this thing called the three minute manifesto where he asks people, students to take three minutes to write down what they want to do with their life. And he says, you know what? Even if it's something simple, like I hope I get to do something where I'm outdoors one day a week, that's a value that they might never have articulated. And he said, people know they just never get asked. Um, that's, you know, that's a pretty powerful part of learning as well to help students find out not just a way to make a paycheck, and I would never, ever, ever put down anyone wanting uh, to go to school in order to make a paycheck. Forty um, percent of our students live below the poverty line here at City University of New York. I mean, I have such admiration for my working three jobs in order to get an education, first-generation immigrant college students. I mean, I, I, I'm in awe and humbled by them. Um, at the same time, I also don't want them to have to feel like they have to hate their life every morning when they wake up because they're going to a job that makes money and they never thought about jobs that, that could also make money, but that they would find fulfilling. Um, I just happened to today to talk to, um, I hurt my knee, so I went to physical therapy this more, just a few hours ago. And this wonderful physical therapist told me about how he, it takes six years post-baccalaureate to earn a PhD, a doctorate in physical therapy. And I said, did you ever think about medical school? He said, you know, I had the grades and was admitted to medical school. And I realized I really don't like the medical system, but I love the idea that I could help people walk again or help people recover from catastrophic illnesses and get their lives back. He said, so I made a career change. And I said, and were you right? He said, every day, every day I was right. That's, I want all my students to feel like that and to know there are those choices. What if you had one takeaway that you w- hope people get from from this book? What would it be? Trust your students. That um, so much of our educational system is structured on the idea that students hate school, don't care, just want to go to frat parties. Which, like so few of this, the, you know, the 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 percentage of students that actually live in that mythical world where everybody is in their residence, nobody has a job and all they care about is athletics and the, and, and Greek life is, you know, that's a minority of our, of our college students. They almost 50% of students today go to community college where those, you know, it's a whole different world. But if you trust them to care about their future and you can earn their trust, 
that you care about their future, it's an amazing, higher education is an amazing, amazing experience. And we know the National Association of Colleges and Employers, NACE, has done lots of interviews with employers. And we know that the things employers say are the top most important things for any student to have are all the things that higher education does well. Critical thinking uh, and problem solving. Uh, co communication skills, writing and listening and uh, reading, uh, reading skills. Um, uh, professionalism and a work ethic. If you assign students a term paper and they have to manage that all the way to completion, you're teaching them. Um, work skills, um, you know, there's a, about six other, um, they want some kind of digital literacy and some kind of intercultural literacy or international literacy, some understanding of the world. And that comes up over and over and over again. That's what higher education is. Um, most of us in higher education don't know that's what it is. We think it is about making students remember the 76 things in our field in this course that are going to be on the final exam. But if you make the horizon the rest of their lives and you help students understand how even studying for an exam has a utility, right? You may forget stuff, but you at least are learning certain things. And there's, there's all these brilliant things in the book that we learn from other people about how to make the most rigid kind of law school exam, for example, be something you can learn things about yourself from. Carl Wyman, again, the, the physics um, Nobel Prize winner, has some wonderful things that he has takeaways where he'll have students do flip classrooms and then go home and say, um, answer the questions before they read a new assignment. What did I mess up in class last time? And what did I get wrong? And how would I, how would I think about that again? And then they read the next class. They read the, the work for the next class. And so they're always learning from their own mistakes, from other people's mistakes. That's a life skill. So trust your students to want a better life for themselves, whatever that may be and earn their trust. Um, that's really what the whole book is about. Well, that's great. I, it's so interesting. And thank you so much for taking the time to share this with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we explore the future of learning with audio stories and interviews. We are growing strong, but we could always use your help in spreading the word. Please tell your friends about the Ed Surge Podcast or share it on social media, and you can keep up with what we're doing by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thank you for listening.